Hello and welcome to Stefan Levera podcast episode 10. And my guests today are Hasu and Nick Carter. So uh, Hasu and Nick, guys, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Awesome, awesome. So what I'm going to do is I'll just quickly intro you to the listeners. So Hasu is a poker pro who has transitioned across into Bitcoin writing, analysis, and research. And Nick Carter, he is a partner of Castle Island Ventures, and he's also the co-founder of Coinmetrics.io, which is a really good uh, analysis website. So the reason I wanted to get you guys on the show today was some of the really cool analysis you guys did in two articles that you collaborated on. The first one there was Visions of Bitcoin, and the other one was Analysis of Batching in Bitcoin. And I think in these articles, you guys did a great job in documenting the historical views of people in Bitcoin. And then on the transaction batching side, it was really, really solid data-driven conclusions on Bitcoin transaction batching. So if it's all right with you guys, we might start with uh, the Visions of Bitcoin article. Now, this one was released 30th of July, 2018. I thought this article was really cool in two ways. Now, first one is for people who've been around for a while, it's a bit of a trip down memory lane. You sort of see the history of Bitcoin and sort of live it back in a way. And then for newbies, it really helps explain where Bitcoin came from. What, how have we got here? And the other part that I think is really useful and a really good point that you hit home in this article is Bitcoin doesn't have one single use or vision. It's rather a multitude of visions. Um, so let's start with uh, how long have you guys been in Bitcoin? Uh, Hasi, you want to go first? Okay. So um, I got I learned about Bitcoin basically in 2017, um, late in the year, and um, I didn't immediately saw the potential, but um, I put a little time, like I reserved a little time to look into it late in the year, and then I... I started to get it a little bit more and 2018 was when I, I fully transitioned from poker. I had been looking for a new challenge for a while and uh, um, I thought it was an uh, absolutely um, fantastic topic to dive deeper into. Yeah, for me, I, um, I used to be a, a super active uh, Redditor and I would lurk on all those tech forums. I think I... So I posted on Slashdot, um, you know, back in 2011, 2012. Um, and I, I didn't really pay much attention to it until probably uh, 2013, uh, 2014. Um, I got actually pretty into the, the whole like Dogecoin community at the end of 2013. Um, and uh, <laughs> nice. But I, I didn't actually do anything with Bitcoin until... Um, you know, until the the end almost of the bear market in uh, twenty fifteen and sixteen. Um, so uh, yeah, I haven't been active in Bitcoin for very long, but I've definitely definitely been sort of passively aware of it for a while. I did actually okay, cool, cool. I did actually pay someone in Bitcoin in two thousand thirteen, I think, but it was just a one time thing, and then I forgot about it again. <laughs> Uh-huh, right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I think that helps set the scene because I guess in order to write an article like this, uh, my question would be, what sort of research did you guys do to try and understand the prevailing winds and attitudes in the community, not just now, but at different times in history? Yeah, a lot of it um, relied on just my kind of subjective uh, recollections of what um, had been the dominant narratives in Bitcoin over the years. So like, you know, one thing I, I think we need to clarify is that um, we didn't do any data mining. Or, this wasn't like a big data project where we parsed a ton of keywords. Um, mm. But I think a lot of people interpreted it like that. This was actually just us um, trying to, you know, take a best effort um, at uh, classifying these narratives over time based on like our recollections. Um, a few conversations with Bitcoiners that, you know, I knew had been around since pretty much the start. Um, so, yeah, this is kind of, I think, more subjective than uh, some people understood it to be. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I, I agree with that. I think even for me, when I was reading this, I, I, you know, I've been around since kind of early 2013. And at least from what I could, yeah, as I perceived it, I think it's quite an accurate, uh, quite an accurate view. 
Um, okay, so you guys uh, make a comment on the Bitcoin white paper, some of the early forum posts being almost like this founding document that the Bitcoiners refer to and quote unquote, just try to decipher what Satoshi truly meant. Can you guys elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, Hasi, go ahead. Okay, so yeah, I think the, the article maybe could have used like a, a sum in there, like some Bitcoiners do that. Um, I think that, that was what we meant to say. Um, and some don't. And um, yeah, I think we know that there are some Bitcoiners who just try to interpret the word of Satoshi in the white paper and all the forum posts and basically all the messages that were ever recorded from him and, and try to interpret exactly what he meant. Um, and I personally think that it's not the way to go because the challenges um, and the like the data changes, the, the whole world changes around Bitcoin and Bitcoin has to adapt to the world around it. So, yeah, yeah I, I think it's kind of a function of the the lack of you know obvious leadership signals in Bitcoin. I mean, there are you know people that are sort of acknowledged leaders, but you know the absence of a real clear hierarchy kind of leads people to search for answers when there might not actually be any. Um, and that's kind of why we see the fetishism of the the white paper and like the the early forum post by Satoshi. And I, I think it's probably mistaken to put too much weight on those just because so much has changed in the last nine years and we've learned so much about Bitcoin and, you know, the properties of proof of work and stuff like SPVs, you know, we've learned a lot about the constraints of this system. So I I yeah I wouldn't you know necessarily place too much weight on the uh, on the founding documents. Uh, David yeah, Harding has actually put out put out a um, a GitHub page where he recorded all the things that were written in the white paper that were completely technically uh, infeasible and who had to be changed just to make Bitcoin work at all. And it's a pretty fascinating read. Yeah, great point, Hasu. I will include a link to that in the show notes. I've actually seen that. I Just off the top of my head, I believe it's called Bitcoin Errata or something yeah. like that. I'll yeah, definitely yeah. include the um, link to that. That's a great one to listen to or read to, rather, um, for people who are new to understand what's changed. Okay, so let's now move into some of the narratives or visions and maybe talk about their story arc. So uh, do you guys want to talk about what is eCash proof of concept and just kind of discuss the story arc for that one? Yeah, I mean, that was, um, you know, prior to Bitcoin actually, you know, demonstrating any resilience. Um, and I mean, it's, I, I, I think there, there wasn't even a difficulty adjustment upwards for something for several months after it being started. So, I mean, in the early days, it really wasn't considered a robust or functional system. I mean, it was just, an attempt to create a a digital cash that you know wasn't subject to the double spend problem uh, in the absence of like a central mint, um, and we'd seen so many of these schemes fail. So I think you know if, if you look at the reaction on the Cypherpunk mailing list to the early uh, Bitcoin announcements, it was kind of skeptical and muted. You know, people didn't really necessarily believe that the system was would work, and I think. You know, in 2008, there had been so many failures um, of, you know, digital or e-cash systems. So my understanding is that people were kind of disillusioned, um, people in that kind of small community. And so, you know, I think that was the first major view of Bitcoin was just as an experiment and, you know, nothing more. Yeah, good point. And I think you're, you're making the point there that almost... At the start, people were skeptical and it took a bit of time for people to see, okay, this has been alive for now and it's really working like we thought it would and now we can place some confidence into it. And then as you point out in your article that, and especially in, in the graph where you sort of show, where you graphically represent this, the eCash proof of concept sort of starts big, but then it sort of wanes away and it's taken over by other narratives. Yeah, the um, justification. So, okay, so let's go. Yeah, go on. I was just going to say the justification there is that um, Bitcoin had to be de-risked in many ways for people to progress beyond just seeing it as an experiment and maybe seeing it as a real currency or digital gold. And so that was kind of the justification for for that shape of that curve. 
Yeah, and I think the only way for Bitcoin to move beyond the proof of concept was time. You know, there had to be a lot of time had to pass without any fatal failures and downtimes um, to be to move beyond that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then the next one you guys have is cheap P2P payments network. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's that's a it's a very troublesome one, you know. Um, and there's still, I mean, I think a lot of debate over what the intention was. You know, is Bitcoin a, a sort of all inclusive monetary system, or is it just an internet currency? Um, you know, on a P2P basis. Um, and you know, I guess from you know Bitcoin's founding until now, that's been the source of the greatest amount of conflict. Um, and you know, even some of the early promoters for Bitcoin that are considered to have done an amazing job promoting it to the world. Um, we're, we're peddling the view of Bitcoin as a P2P payments network, as opposed to, you know, um, emphasizing its other characteristics like being, you know, untamperable and censorship resistant and so on. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting how a lot of the early evangelists were seduced by this view. I mean, I guess it would have been difficult to predict the, the constraints that became, obvious in you know 2014 15 what's also interesting is that it's basically thanks to the cheap uh, p2p payments narrative or like the the people who use it as such that bitcoin became money in the first place or like became, gained this attribute of moneyness for the first time when people were actually trading it you know just uh m- probably to use it to buy something. That's a good point. And I think it wouldn't have achieved the wide distribution that it did without the the culture of tipping and buying kind of frivolous things with Bitcoin. So, I mean, I, it probably also benefited from that in that, you know, having a wide dispersion of holders is useful. Absolutely. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. Um, and now let's contrast that cheap P2P payments view um, with the censorship-resistant digital gold view. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, probably the majority view today, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it took a while to get there, um, and some people would consider that a failure. Um, you know, like, what's the point of a store of value? Like, shouldn't you be spending it? You know, do we need a disinflationary asset, or should we just have an inflationary asset, which... You know, are, are there risks with, with having something with, with potentially deflationary characteristics? Um, you know, should Bitcoin even be a, a settlement layer as opposed to a, a payments layer? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would consider that to be pretty much the dominant narrative. And you can see on the chart that, you know, we felt that it, it had reached a period um, of, of sort of relative certainty or... Um, you know, harmony um, that Bitcoiners had generally converged on this view today. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, the next one you guys have is the private and anonymous darknet currency. Yeah, I mean, that one's a, I mean, we, you know, we wanted to acknowledge that, big, that you know, the, the, the kind of darknets and the private currency was a really big part of Bitcoin's history. Especially, you know, starting with the Silk Road and then towards Alpha Bay, Dream, and Hansa, you know, those darknet markets. And actually, if you look at the darknet markets today, um, Bitcoin would still be the major currency used there. I mean, along with Monero, but just out of convenience, Bitcoin is actually, I would say, the most popular on the darknet markets. Yeah. And I think that, like, people saying that Bitcoin is not private at all or it's completely transparent there don't really do it justice because if you use Bitcoin in the right way, if you like follow all the best practices, then it can be still fairly private. And I think that the, the use of um, like the market kind of agrees with that, but it wouldn't use Bitcoin in such a way anymore. The interesting thing is that there are privacy enhancements being added to Bitcoin, not at the protocol layer, but at kind of the wallet layer. Um, so, so sort of, you know, better implementations of coin join and Tumblebit um, are now becoming reality. So we might actually see a resurgence in the, in the transactional layer of privacy, which is pretty interesting. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think we're also seeing improvements in terms of being able to use Lightning as well. And then there are other, some other ones on the on on Bitcoin as well, like uh, Julia Fanti's uh, that dandelion one as well around transaction propagation. So yeah, that's it's an interesting uh, story arc here because this one started out big. It's sort of gotten smaller today, but it may actually become a bit bigger in future. So. We'll yeah, we, I mean, our, our taxonomy here isn't perfect because um, part of the, the e-gold or digital gold story is probably privacy as well. So um, it, it, it was kind of difficult to, to classify um, what Bitcoin privacy, where Bitcoin privacy enthusiasts would fall in the chart. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think most you know, serious Bitcoiners still would prefer that, you know, real privacy enhancements were added on. Yes, yes. Um, I think you're right. It's, it's, it can be difficult to conceptually separate the cases as, you know, some of the guys who want censorship-resistant digital gold would also want it to be private, as you've said. Okay, and the next one is a, an interesting one. It's reserve currency for cryptocurrency. Now, I noted it's interesting that this one didn't even exist until about 2012. What caused this vision to rise? Yeah, I mean, the, the thinking there was just the emergence of Litecoin, basically, in 2012. And, and you know, then you had the MasterCoin ICO, I think, uh, in 2013. So when, yeah, so like, I mean, I guess there were some very early altcoins in 2011 or so. But the kind of altcoin exchange, you know, regime only got started with the rise of altcoins in, you know, 2012, 13. And then obviously 2014 was a really big year for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we wanted to acknowledge how Bitcoin is actually used. And, you know, a really, you know, significant percentage of all transactions is just people getting access to other cryptocurrencies, like, you know, to, to access the like altcoin casino. So, you know, while this is a chart about the opinions of Bitcoin, um, you know, from the perspective of Bitcoiners, we also wanted to acknowledge the fact that a, a real significant part of Bitcoin's use case was, you know, as the reserve asset, generally speaking, for the broader crypto market. And I think we also we, we see that in the second part of the podcast when we talk about the batching analysis, because exchanges still make up for a big part of, the, of all the transaction volume in the Bitcoin network. And I, I would assume that most of them, most of these transactions are actually for people who who trade some other financial assets other than Bitcoin as well. Yeah, great points. So it's almost like these altcoiners are a Bitcoiner just in the sense that they use Bitcoin to get what they want, which is the altcoins. Yeah, okay. And then the next one is programmable shared database. Now this one sort of on the graph, it sort of starts in 2011. It became a little more prominent in 2014 and then it's now become a lot smaller. Can you guys outline why that's happened? Yeah, this was actually part of the main motivation for making the chart, believe it or not. (laughs) Um, Because I kind of wanted to, I mean, both of us wanted to acknowledge the fact that there had been you know, previously fairly popular narratives that subsequently faded away. And yeah, I mean, really, we, we just wanted to convey these parts of Bitcoin history that might be forgotten today. Um, but I mean, if you, if you were around in 2015, 16, um, the, the potential for side chains was really popular among Bitcoiners. And I think the dominant narrative at the time was that altcoins were kind of useless because all of that functionality would be added to Bitcoin in the form of sidechains. Um, and then, you know, those ended up being, I think, you know, less technically feasible than people thought. Um, and it wasn't just sidechains. I mean, people were, you know, hashing data into the op return. Um, that was super popular. Rootstock was thought to be bringing, you know, Ethereum-style functionality to Bitcoin. And then, you know, my subjective view is that that has really faded away recently. And then the focus is now on kind of minimizing the like overhead on the base layer. So it's interesting that this view, you know, I think really fell out of favor um, given that it was actually pretty popular for a while. I think it 
there, there's also a correlation between the cheap P2P payments network and uh, the programmable shared database, because I think that most use cases of this database that were envisioned back then would be priced out today. I don't think I just don't think it's it's feasible from an economic standpoint anymore. That's a good point, but it is interesting that um, the tether, which is on the Omni layer, um, you know, which is you know part. I mean, it sort of depends on Bitcoin. Um, is actually pretty. I don't know if you'd call it successful, but it's uh, it's fairly popular and has like quite a great deal of volume. So that's you know maybe a, a qualified success of that view of Bitcoin. Yeah, agreed. Uh -huh. Agreed. It's just one very okay. successful uh, application on top of Bitcoin, I'd say. Yeah, there, there aren't many. Yeah. True. I would say, I mean, probably yeah, the graveyard of. Um, yeah, as another uh, example, open timestamps. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, number seven, you've got uncorrelated financial asset. So could you explain what this use case or history or story is and how dominant or prevalent is this now? Yeah, this was kind of a difficult one to gauge um, because most Bitcoiners are probably not buying Bitcoin for its return characteristics as they relate to the broader market of financial assets. Um, however, that has definitely been a pretty popular narrative especially in financial circles. And I would say that's part of the reason that any asset allocator um, you know, from traditional markets would even consider Bitcoin because it has a pretty good track record now of having absolutely zero correlation with like any equity index, any sovereign currency, any commodity index. Even to this day, you know, now the Bitcoin is sort of partially financialized. It still doesn't really have a correlation with any of those indices. Um, so that is kind of compelling. Uh, if the liquidity profile holds up over the next few years, um, this might become an even stronger narrative. I mean, I don't know if you could um, classify it as a hedge against, like, you know, the S and P five hundred or anything. Um, but you know, if you tread in financial circles and talk about Bitcoin, that is one of the real significant appeals. Um, and uh, yeah, so we have it sort of growing sharply because I think. Um, that that narrative is definitely gaining steam. And I'd add that the like the important word in this narrative is uh, the uncorrelated, because what we didn't spell out specifically in the article, but what we assumed was that um, most buyers and holders of Bitcoin would also do that with an expectation of profit. So they they wanted to make money. By holding Bitcoin, um, but they had to have an expectation in their head of why other people would bit, would value Bitcoin more in the future, and this basically gives rise to these narratives. So you have some people who think that Bitcoin will become digital gold and will be valued as digital gold, while others think that it will be valued as cheap peer-to-peer -peer payments, for example. Yeah. Yeah, and I, the other point I like you I like that you guys make is this characterization of investors who want quote unquote Bitcoin flavored risk, but not necessarily Bitcoin itself. Uh, okay, and then the other one is the potential tensions associated with this story. Can you outline any tension between this story and the earlier private anonymous currency story? Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of tension there. Um... Most people buying Bitcoin um, as an uncorrelated financial asset don't necessarily need ex direct exposure to Bitcoin itself. They don't necessarily need or want the private keys. Um, so, you know, they might want to buy it through a trust or through an, an ETN or and maybe later an ETF. Um, and uh, they're not as concerned with privacy. But then users that do value privacy, I think there's a risk that they find themselves frozen out from a lot of the exchanges um, that are, are trying to become regulated and, and totally incorporated into the financial system. Yeah, and we are also seeing the fiat on-ramps becoming more and more um, strict when it comes to privacy and de-anonymization 
of user funds. So, for example, in the last days, I've seen various reports on Twitter emerge from uh, people who have their Coinbase accounts locked because um, their funds are coming from uh, local Bitcoins, for example. Yeah, and I, I think I had a report of someone who had this Coinbase account locked just because he was like a notorious, he had like a notorious political views, and I guess Coin, Coinbase decided they didn't like that. Yeah, we, I think we are entering a a very critical period of the internet when it comes to censorship from big actors. Yeah, that's right. And it's I think that comes to the next point you make, which is around the coming battlegrounds in future you know visions of Bitcoin. One of which is fungibility, as you mentioned. Do you have any uh, further comments around fungibility and how that may play out? Nobody really knows, right? But I, I think if I had to guess what the next major conflict would be, it would probably be fungibility. I mean, if uh, if Chainalysis had their way, you know, we'd have the tainted Bitcoins, which would be one class of Bitcoins, and then we'd have the clean Bitcoins uh, circulating. And um, a lot of people would be frozen out from fiat on-ramps due to their position of tainted Bitcoins. And then I think we might have a reckoning where core devs, would try and add confidential transactions to Bitcoin. I don't know if they're necessarily pursuing this right now, um, but you know, my understanding is that that's in the potential long-term roadmap. Um, but if they were to add confidential transactions, that would really reduce the ability of exchanges to vet, you know, the history associated with those Bitcoins and you know carry out their compliance requirements. So. And then you have a question as well, do you prefer a fungible Bitcoin that is, you know, has a, a worse liquidity profile um, and potentially a lower price? Or do you prefer a this dual class of clean Bitcoins and tainted Bitcoins um, where the, the, the clean Bitcoins trade at a premium to the tainted ones? Um, so it's kind of a really tough like bargain to make. And um, the more that this financial asset view survives um, and prospers, I think probably the less aggregate demand there is going to be for, for true fungibility in Bitcoin. So I, I see that one as a really significant potential debate in the coming years. Yeah, same here. Fascinating discussion there on the trade-offs there, um, on you know having more liquidity on a quote-unquote clean chain, let's say. Um, but I think... Yeah, that's potentially where some of the work by guys like uh, Adam Fixor, No Para 73, and, and some of the others are trying to basically break that link in terms of uh, linking coins and linking them back to prior addresses and so on that they've been associated with. Um, but yeah, that remains to be seen. The other area that might be a slight tension as well, and it's also related to the financialization, uh-huh. is the concept of fractional, you know, paper BTC versus full reserve BTC that we might potentially see. And some uh, in the, some Bitcoiners such as Trace Mayer and Caitlin Long have commented about the potential for this on backed. Do you have any thoughts on that as a potential battleground as well? Yeah. I see. You want to go? Yeah. So I think, I think it, like I, I heard your last podcast with Murat who thinks, for example, that um, fractional reserve banking on Bitcoin is completely infeasible and i disagree with that um i think it's it's almost a given that backed will same as many bitcoin banks in the future uh, will use fractional reserve banking um i think there are already strong indications for that as caitlin long has pointed out they have like an emergency fund and i'm not aware of any um example in the past where um, banks or exchanges had an emergency fund that were not operating on fractional reserve. Yeah, I, I, I kind of see it as inevitable, to be honest. And I mean, I think about, I think we have this this proto-Bitcoin bank um, regime in place already. I mean, I think of exchanges as banks, right? Yeah. Um, people make the trade-off. They don't want to hold Bitcoins themselves, so then they hold them in the exchange. So the exchange is essentially providing a banking function. Uh, the question is, do they start then lending out, you know, the reserve and 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 keeping a fraction? And I think the beauty of Bitcoin is that um, if users demand it, 
those exchanges or banks can essentially prove they can attest to their reserves. And then, you know, my ideal is that the, the market kind of decides what an appropriate level of risk is. So, you know, maybe the exchange that wants like a reserve ratio of like a hundred to one, maybe nobody like ends up using that one because they don't trust it. And like a, a run on the bank would be disastrous. Um, but you know, it's just not that capital efficient to uh, custody all 100% reserves 100% of the time, right? Yeah, so I, I also right, think right. that um, it's on the market to decide. And um, transpar- like the, the, as you pointed out, Nick, the, the transparency that Bitcoin brings to fractional reserve banking, I think it's very valuable for consumers to make more educated decisions about that kind of stuff. So I think we, we will always be able to see what the reserve ratio of a bank is, how much reserves they have right now. And um, yeah, then customers can simply make uh, their own decisions as to which bank to choose. So, I mean, if you have full reserve banking, then of course you don't have any uh, um, revenue from lending out those Bitcoins, but fractional reserve banking, let's say with a 10 to one ratio, um, maybe you can earn some interest on your Bitcoin if you want. You get more risk, but you also get something in return. Yeah, so I guess there are differing visions on how it could um, play out. And I guess ultimately it's sort of the market, you know, it will try and set a reserve ratio level. So maybe the reserve ratio level would be 10% or maybe it would be closer to 95% and it's kind of closer to the full reserve vision. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely an interesting coming battleground. Okay, so I think let's now switch over to the other article, which is the analysis of batching. And this was written in or published rather in May the 21st uh, uh, of 2018, just earlier this year. Uh, what I really liked about this article was the clear and succinct breakdowns and definitions, as well as some really solid data driven conclusions on transactions versus payments. So let's set the stage a little bit. What were some of the problems causing high Bitcoin transaction fees in late 2017 and early 2018? <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> Hasi, go ahead. Yeah, I think very, the very simple answer is there was more demand than supply for block space. So people wanted to make transactions and there was not enough room in the blocks. So... Yeah, I I mean, some people think that there was also a coordinated spam attack, but it's kind of hard to know. And I, I really do think it just came down to demand. Yeah. And I suppose also that a lot of the exchanges were had just signed up a lot of customers and they were sort of trying to fight fires and maybe they hadn't gone and done all these technical solutions to do batching, consolidation, and so on. Um, up until the pressure sort of forced them to later on. Yeah, that's absolutely um, right. Okay. And then- I mean, the most exchanges were extremely irresponsible um, with their stewardship of the block space. And I think sort of only now are we seeing a coordinated effort to um, of, of outreach um, through Bitcoin Optech, which I think is a really great initiative. Um, and the other point I think on the fees is actually that... Um, if you look at the chart on that batching article, average fees in terms of units of Bitcoin, uh, there were four spikes there, and they were all roughly the same, aside from a couple of days in kind of December. And so I think the reason the fees got so high was actually just because you know people denominated the fees in USD. Um, and as Bitcoin's price was rising, it made the fees look super high. But relatively speaking, in terms of Bitcoin units, the fee was like roughly the same. As, as the previous spikes were. Yeah, I like that on the distinction between, you know, what is your unit of account here? Are you are we talking in BTC or Satoshis or are we talking in US dollars? I think that, I'd actually, uh, so what sorry, is a UT? Actually, I think I disagree with what you've said first, that the exchanges were irresponsible with their stewardship of the blockchain. I think it's um, the Bitcoin network is responsible for creating the incentives um, like for for actors basically to behave any way they want, but if they behave in a poor way, then they have to pay more for it. I think it's just it's uh it comes down to like over a longer time they couldn't keep up 
this usage because they were just burning money. But at the time, it was profitable for them to do so. So I think I think that's what we see now. Basically, the the, the exchanges they are improving their processes because fees are actually starting to matter. Yeah, and I mean, I guess they could just pass those fee costs on to the end users, which is what they were doing back in uh, 2017. And there wasn't too much pushback just because it was in a period of sort of, you know, enthusiasm, I guess. Yeah, and if you have like 50% of the transactions coming from exchanges, then maybe it's not on the users to actually complain about the fees because um, the exchanges are actually the ones paying for Bitcoin, for, for the Bitcoin network to run in that case. So. Yeah. Okay. Interesting discussion around the incentives. And I think it's, it's probably a reflection that the exchanges were able to successfully pass on the cost to the users. And I think that's sort of the point Nick was making, which is that because of the, you know, enthusiasm or the frenzy around, you know, Bitcoin and altcoins at that time, people were just willing to pay ridiculously high fees and the exchanges kind of got away with it. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. Um, okay, so th- the next question I had is, what is a UTXO and what does it mean to say, say that Bitcoin uses a UTXO model? Hase, you want to take okay, this one? sure. So a UTXO stands for unspent transaction output and the best way to explain it is probably it's a coin. You know, it's like... So you want to send 10 bucks to someone, um, the wallet would select UTXOs from your wallet, like you would select coins from your physical wallet that have 10 or more dollars combined um, to go into that transaction. And um, whatever isn't needed to pay the receiver goes back to you and that's called a change output. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Um, and then can you outline the difference between a transaction, a payment, and an output? So a transaction, I'd say, I'd say it's basically moving information or value between different parties. Okay. So um, in the case of Bitcoin, it's basically information because like the value, the value is only created because people on the outside of the Bitcoin network value having bitcoins so um, the bitcoin network is basically a network for moving information between the parties storing and moving information um, a payment would be um, so a transaction can have multiple outputs so we said that we take inputs and outputs into a transaction and a transaction can have not just multiple inputs but also multiple outputs um, and each output goes basically to a single recipient. So um, a transaction with multiple outputs um, is called a batch transaction. And each of those outputs is called a payment. Yeah, and I, I guess yeah. the, the yeah. idea here is that um, if you look at a Bitcoin transaction, they can carry arbitrary amounts of value um, and pretty much arbitrary uh, numbers of inputs or outputs. Um, I mean, you know, although the constraint there is the the block size, um, but you know, you can fit several thousand inputs and and several thousand outputs into a single Bitcoin transaction. So, and that's you know, so the transaction is like the really big box that incorporates tons and tons of inputs or outputs. Uh, in some cases, I mean, and some other transactions have you know one input and and one output. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess the, the real motivation for this piece was, piece was just uh, the, the common misunderstandings about uh, what a Bitcoin transaction really is. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, guys. So what is transaction batching and why does it help conserve space? I'd say transaction batching is when you put multiple payments, um, so basically outputs into a single transaction. Um, the important part is that the inputs um, take up most of the space in a transaction because of the signature data that's stored in them, which proves that the coins really belong to you. Um, so batching is basically about minimizing the number of inputs needed for each output. More outputs for each input saves space and so saves basically fees and block space. Yeah. 
Okay. And then in the article, you guys mentioned a mail truck box letter uh, analogy. Can you spell that out for the listeners? <laughs> yeah, that was kind of a funny one. Um, we got a lot of good feedback on that one. Reasoning by analogy is very risky, but uh, we thought that this one kind of made sense. So um, I, the, the, the idea there is that transactions are just containers for a, a pretty much arbitrary number of outputs, and each output can have a totally arbitrary amount of Satoshis within it. Um, so we're basically saying that you know these boxes in the mail truck are outputs and output, and it doesn't quite work because you can really fit a, a completely arbitrary number of Satoshis um, in an output, right? So you can have an output of, of you know colossal value in Bitcoin terms. Um, but uh, yeah, so so it, it's, it doesn't literally work as an analogy, but yeah, so the idea is that you can have um, tons and tons of letters in a box and tons and tons of boxes in a truck. And of course, the truck can have a single box with a single letter in it, but that's just not very efficient, right? Because um, then you're, you're paying really high fixed costs um, in terms of the weight of the truck and so on. Uh, so that's kind of the intuition behind Bitcoin transactions. Yeah, I mean, maybe you can even like zoom out one more step and think of the truck as like a Bitcoin block and like the box as a transaction and uh, the letter as an output. And then on the letter, there's like a number written. So the number can be like infinitely large and the number says how much you want to transfer. Oh, that's basically. actually, yeah, that's way better. We should have done so, that one. <laughs> benefit of hindsight. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So who are the typical parties that should batch their transactions? I, yeah, I would say exchanges probably. Uh, I know mining pools do do that. Pretty much anyone that's a real heavy user, like a power user of the Bitcoin network. Uh, and for the most part, those are custodians, uh, exchanges. Um, anyone where um, absolute... Um, is, I would say anyone where uh, transactions are not necessarily that time-sensitive because the time sensitivity reduces your ability to batch, right? Because um, you know you want to be able to queue up transactions and then send them out all together if you're broadcasting to a bunch of people. Um, and so exchanges aren't perfect for that because people will start to get upset if you're waiting if they're waiting for a withdrawal, right? Uh, but mining pools definitely are frequent batchers. Um, and uh, yeah, I, th I, those are the ones that I can think of at least. Yeah, I mean, if like if you if you make a little like thought experiment, then everyone could use batching in theory. Like if you had to pay like or if you paid like your rent and um, whatever fixed cost you had in a month, you could could in theory put all of that into a single transaction if you want. Yeah, this could be abstracted into wallet infrastructure too. Mm -hmm. um, it could become a completely default thing. And I think Samurai has batching capability in their Android wallet, um, actually. But I mean, it's a, it's pretty uncommon for for just normal everyday users because, you know, like realistically, how many transactions are you making? Yeah, but a, a, like a basic feature where you just queue transactions and then hit send when you're done. And then the like the wallet selects like the, 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 the optimal fee for, for your preferences. I think that's... That's a feature that I hope we will see from all wallets because I think it's just very useful. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, so maybe how, that we'll see. Yeah. I was just going to say how underexplored the design space for Bitcoin wallets has been. There's just so much potential there with basic stuff like that. Yeah, so there, potentially there could be a like like you was mentioning there. There could be a concept of you know queuing a transaction versus sending it, and maybe if you queue it, that's saying oh I'm I don't mind that much about this transaction coming through, you know, in the next block, I'm happy to wait and let it batch for a lower fee, et cetera, and better privacy. So that, that could be something we could see evolve. You kind of need high fees in a network for a reasonably long time for people to start caring about this stuff. And then I think we will see um, the design space of wallets and batching and every fee optimization explored. A lot more. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the incentives aren't really there. Right now, fees are like a fraction of a dollar. I mean, they're, they're a few cents. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, all the big exchanges have begun, for the most part, have begun batching and using SegWit and so on. 
Um, but for individuals to start queuing transactions, I think will take more in the way of uh, fee pressure. Yeah, great parallel to how exchanges may not have had an incentive to batch until the fees went high. Same way users may not have an incentive to batch until their fees go high. So, yeah. Okay. What are some common errors made by casual commentators when they talk about the number of transactions in Bitcoin? Yeah, I would say um, any kind of on-chain metric tends to be really deeply uh, misinterpreted um, by sort of casual users. Um, I mean, even the notion of transaction count itself, taking it, um, it, it's often seen as like one of the most important metrics and all kinds of arguments are made on the basis of transaction count. And I think that's pretty um, illegitimate most of the time. And it's, it's very possible to construct misleading arguments with reference to transaction count. Um, the, the, the whole premise of the article was that the relationship between outputs and transaction count was changing. Um, I think, you know, in hindsight, uh, that, that much is clear, although it wasn't necessarily that dramatic a shift, but I think it was nevertheless a shift. Um, so yeah, I mean, just, just taking transaction count too seriously without looking at other associated metrics. And I think the key ones are, um, you know, payment count or which is just output count and also transactional value. Um, because you, you know, if you extend the analysis to other chains like EOS or Ethereum, for instance, both of them have transaction counts that are higher than that of Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, a total economic throughput that is, that is less, especially in the case of EOS, for instance. Um, so it's just completely misleading to look exclusively at transaction count. Yeah, and um, I mean, also in the case of, for example, EOS, you have to factor in that there's heavy inflation on the network. Um, just in general, like making the transactions possible. So, um, but it, the question is like, what can your network afford in terms of transactions for the cost that it's bearing on its users? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then in this uh, study that you guys did, how do you define a batched transaction? And then from your research, have batched transactions become more common over time? Yeah, well, I think we said a batch transaction was one with uh, with two outputs or more, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. More than two. Because specifically, yeah. More than two, right? Yeah. So three or more, yeah. right? Yeah, because your your generic transaction has uh, two outputs, one of which is change, mm -hmm. return to the sender. And then one of which is paid to the recipient. So then, we, yeah, we went for three or more was our definition of a batched output. Um, and I think, you know, the conclusion, actually the guys that um, paid a script hash read our um, article and then subsequently incorporated the methodology into a live dashboard, which is awesome. Um, yeah. Paid a script hash dot info. And so, you know, it's been a, it's been a couple of months since we published our analysis. Uh, so you have completely updated numbers over there. Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay. And I think one of the highlights from your conclusion is today around 12% of all transactions on the Bitcoin network are batched. And these account for about 40% of all outputs and between 30 to 60% of all transactional value. So the question then is, what does this imply for the future of scaling on Bitcoin's base layer? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's a conditionally kind of a good sign. Um, and it tells me a little bit about where I think the network is going. So, you know, I, I see Bitcoin as something that is, is bearing more and more industrial usage. And by industrial, I mean by like heavy users, you know, relative to just typical individuals transacting with Bitcoin. And that definitely does not mesh with the view that many Bitcoiners have for Bitcoin. Um, but I think, you know, just realistically, that's what's happening. And the prevalence of batch transactions, you know, roughly 35% of all outputs today tells us that, you know, it's really those power users that are the ones that are accounting for the most of the network space. Um, and if we can, you know, connect with them and encourage them to be, you know, have a lighter touch on the network, that makes me pretty optimistic. Um, 
I mean, you know, a lot of other projects are talking about scaling improvements, um, like extremely dramatic scale improvements through decentralization trade-offs. In my view, you know, lobbying exchanges for these straightforward enhancements to their behavior um, doesn't compromise decent- the, the, like the essential decentralization of the platform. Um, and it, it grants you a nice incremental improvement. Um, and, and that's kind of the way I see that uh, scaling is going to work on Bitcoin. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, very, uh, really uh, great analysis, guys. Uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. I think uh, we're getting to the end of our time. So did you guys have any closing comments? No, I think just oh, thanks for having us and um, keep up the good work, Stefan. I listen to your podcast. Uh, yeah, well, thank you I, very uh, much, guys. I'm grateful that you had us on. I mean, you've had some real luminaries on here. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, feel blessed to be in uh, in such a uh, really established company. Oh, no, I think you guys did some fantastic work. I had to get you guys on. Um, okay, guys, so I will um, put all the links in the description. So, guys, you can find Hasu, Hasu on Twitter. His account is at H-A-S-U-F-L. And Nick, his account is at Nick underscore underscore Carter. Uh, is there, and also find his website at coinmetrics.io. Do you guys have any other websites or places you would like the listeners to find you? I have a, a very uh, boring website uh, for my fund, which is uh, castleisland.vc, but there's not a lot going on over there. Yeah, nothing for Oh, me. no, I'll definitely put a link for that on the show notes page as well. Hasu, have you got any other places uh, the listeners can find you? No, but uh, come to my Twitter if you want to interact with me. Um, I'm basically <laughs> talking on Twitter all day. Excellent. Okay, well, thank you both, Nick and Hasu, for your time. And uh, I'll I'll chat to you next time. Thank you so much, Stefan. Yeah, thanks. has been great. Okay. Okay, guys, so that was the uh, episode there. So just to find the show notes, go to stefanlevera.com, search SLP10 to find the show notes. And if you got value out of this, remember to subscribe to the podcast, Stefan Levera Podcast, on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, so you get the new episode straight away. And uh, don't forget, share it with your friends. And if you've got any feedback, come find me on Twitter at Stefan Levera. Thanks. That's it from me. And I'll see you next time.